Thank you for listening to this teaching from the prayer room. For more teachings, notes, downloads, or to subscribe to our podcast, as well as information about who we are and our upcoming events, visit our website at theprayerroomdfw.com. The foundations of vision. It's a word we like to throw around here a lot. Um, It's kind of a mystical word. People say that you catch the vision sometimes as if it's something that is running around. Um, But in reality, um, walking through life with God in any context, especially in a ministry context, calls for a lot of intentionality. People refer to it as a race or a journey um, or a bunch of other things that imply struggle and victory and hardship and things like that. Um, And most of us know that it also requires a ton of mental strength and fortitude and effort in order to be able to do it well. Um, These qualities are given to us by the Lord through his grace and through his mercy. But we are also called to tend them and to foster them within ourselves. um, To be able to know what we're doing, why we're doing it. It's crucial to any Christian life and any walk and any ministry that you're in. Um, Not just doing something for doing its sake, but knowing why, knowing who you are in it, what role you play. These are all important ingredients for us to know. Proverbs 29.18 says, Where there's no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. Um, But blessed are those who keep the law. And so Brad likes to throw that around as well. And it's like, okay, well, I guess I need, to, I need to have that vision. I need to get it somehow, get it in me. But, like, what is it? How do you do it? Is it just like, oh, I guess I really need to want to do my usher set more? Yes, maybe. Part of it. But it's uh, a lot more complicated than that. Um, the way what I kind of want to do is break down what it is and how you can effectively foster it within yourself um, on a lot on four different levels. And so the four different levels that I chose to break it down into just to kind of help us understand um, are your personal, so being personally envisioned, corporately envisioned, regionally or revival envisioned, and then eschatologically envisioned. Um, It's more of a practical take on it. It's going to be a lot of information that you guys have heard, that you guys know. But I want to provide a framework that's helpful just in case it'll help pull pull you out of some apathy or kind of give you maybe some direction in how you're approaching your walk with the Lord because we can all hit stagnant points. We can all hit, like, what am I doing? Why am I doing it again? Unto what? Who? Where? How? Um... And so, yeah, like I said, we have those four levels, and the first one being being personally envisioned. And now you can call this a lot of things. You can just call it identity. Um, people talk about it a lot, but it's knowing who we are in the Lord, our sonship or daughtership, um, and the truth of who we are, how he feels about us, um, the truth that we are image bearers, the truth of our callings and our strengths and our giftings, learning to celebrate those and foster those within ourselves. Um, That would be being personally envisioned. Um, Secondly, corporately envisioned. So, what the Lord has called us to do, how he has called us to function within a spiritual family and the responsibility that comes along with that. 
um, as the body of Christ, we should conceptualize our part in our community and what the Lord calls us to give to that community and to that group of people um, in whatever context. Then we also have being regionally envisioned, which um, I've kind of coupled with revival, because typically when revival strikes, it strikes a region um, and uh, you know a bunch of people within an area. Um, so the geographic region in which you find yourself. So the Lord has a plan for every part of the world, and he loves every part of the world. And we're supposed to love every part of the world, but we only live in one part of the world. So that kind of limits what we're able to do, and it actually kind of gives us an answer as to, like, well, at least I know that I can only do stuff in DFW. Like, I don't have to put the burdens of the whole world on my shoulders. I can carry a heart for a specific place and in a specific region um, because the Lord is sovereign and he's put us all here unless someone's in just drastic disobedience. But uh, <laughs> yeah, and so we want to, and we use the first two categories, the being personally envisioned and corporately envisioned to kind of inform us how we are to go about in our region, like how we're supposed to function, what we're supposed to do. And then, like I said, the fourth category being eschatologically envisioned. And so we have these first three categories feeding into God's plan for the world and his, his plan to return and establish his kingdom, the great time of trouble that's ahead of us. Like, how are we supposed to align our personal lives? How are we supposed to interact with our corporate body? How are we supposed to interact with our region unto his return and unto preparing everybody for the time of trouble. And so those are kind of the four ways I broke it down because, like I said, vision is just this, like, you got to get vision. You got to want to do the right stuff all the time. And, like, you're just, you, it's just kind of after a while, it's broken record, and you stop hearing it. But um, I kind of wanted to paint a picture and cast vision for why vision is good. But uh, some benefits for being envisioned. Um, have you ever seen Brad sitting right in that little chair? He's typing his notes, and he just looks like the happiest man in the world. Happier than me when I sit down with a plate of food to watch Netflix. And you're like, why are you, you just want to slap the red off his face, but you're jealous. Um, but no, conviction, he's got it, obviously. He's one of the most envisioned people I know. It's very inspiring. And it's, it's something to push towards, but the benefits of being envisioned are you have an immovable conviction in reference to the thing that you're envisioned. The importance of the conviction in your mind won't wane if you're renewing your mind with what the Lord has told you is true on that matter. And so, like, if you really want to care, like, say it's a hobby, you really want to like paint, like I love painting, but like I just never get around to it and blah, blah, blah. Like if you have amazing vision for wanting to paint, you will paint and nothing will stop you from painting a sunset. If you really want to paint a sunset, you'll do it. And so we want to have that approach with our life in God and what he's called us to do. We want nothing to steal from it. And so we need to be constantly feeding these different four areas, depending on what the Lord has actually called us to. We're in a house of prayer, and so corporately and regionally, these questions are a little answered for us 
in some broader terms, but we're all individuals and we all have different skills and callings, so there can be nuance in how it expresses itself. But another benefit to being envisioned is you're willing to put up with a ton in order to walk out your vision. Uh, a lot of the missionaries that have come through this place have crazy stories of just really hard things that somehow didn't deter them from the goal. We all know stories of amazing people who endured ridiculous hardships for what the Lord called them to do. And it's like, I could never do that. Well, you probably could, honestly, if you just, if you just believed with all of your heart that this was what you're supposed to do, that you knew exactly who you were, that you knew exactly what you're supposed to do, and you had enough vision for eternity to where you didn't care what happened to you. Of course you'd be able to do it. Um, and so when you're properly envisioned for what the Lord has called you to do, you can go through a lot. You can pretty much go through anything. Um, and that's uh, another thing that we want to strive to. Another benefit is that you have confidence that you're walking in the will of the Lord since you have taken time to hear and discern what he wants, what he wants you to do or believe about a particular topic or thing. And I'll make a lot of references to, again, the house of prayer because that's where we are, but you could apply this to, like I said, painting. If you really wanted to, Rhoda, I know you paint, but, you know. Um, now, some dangers for not being envisioned. Um, discomforts in your life become ridiculously exaggerated in your perspective. If all you have is right now and all you're working towards is like your just immediate proximity, the little things that kind of bother you will become heightened and exaggerated. You'll be willing to put up with less as opposed to be willing to put up with more because, I mean, what do you have? You have like a nominal, apathetic Christian walk and so like you just want it to be nice and comfy. And so you're willing to put up with a lot less. You become entitled if you're not properly envisioned. Um, and like I kind of said, apathetic towards what the Lord has for you and like what his plans can be. And that's just not a place we really want to be. We want to care about what the Lord cares about. We want to love what he loves and hate what he hates. But when we, when we don't see where he's taking us and where things are going, we will become apathetic. We, we won't care. I mean, I, it's a continuous struggle when you're doing a thousand sets on the stage. And you're like, man, sometimes I don't, uh, don't really care about what's going on right now. And so it's a constant struggle to wash yourself in the truth that you know, to keep your heart in it, to keep, keep your heart alive in those hard moments. And also another danger of not being envisioned is you will miss out on the wonderful plans that he has for you. He wants us to have vision because he's taking us somewhere. And if you want to get where he's taking you, you got you to gotta throw in with him. You know, he wants partnership. And so... Nobody wants to miss out on what the Lord has, but you just have to be willing to kind of go on the journey with him to uncover that, to discern and discover. So, now let's rewind kind of back to those four categories, and let's start off with personal, and I'll try not to camp out here too much. But uh, it's difficult to move on in life with any sort of long-term success or longevity unless you know who you are, who the Lord is to you, how he feels about you, and who he created you to be. Being firm in our identity before the Lord and searching out answers in him for all of our internal doubts and fears is a key to a healthy life in God. And so, yeah, I mean, that pretty much says it right there. Like, this is pretty much where we start for anything. 
any conversation about any topic about God, about anything in your life, about what car you want to buy, where you want to live, anything, needs to be flowing from this place. Like, this is the truth of all truths, of finding out who God is, finding out who we are in him, and then you just live out of that. Um, it's a very complicated thing to do, and quite honestly, you never move on from it. So you're just going to camp out there for your whole life. I'm sorry to tell you, but you'll never move on from this until he comes back. And even then, you won't want to. But resting in God's love for us and having confidence in his care and intentionality in our lives is where we start every conversation and how we approach every situation, kind of like how I was saying. Um, so we want to make sure that when we're going about our corporate mandate, when we're going to the region to try to walk out the greatest, or the, uh, um, yeah, the greatest commandment and uh, the great commission, and even when we're studying the end times and we're looking at eternity, we want it to be from this place of like we are firmly set. We know how he feels about us. We know personally where he's taking us, personally how he feels about us. Um, a few aspects of that would just be our sonship or daughtership. Not sure if that's a word. Um, but our, our, our sonship in him and what it means. Like this, I'm going to glaze over some ridiculously heavy topics, but like, just roll with me. Um, our sonship and what it means. Uh, Romans 8, 14, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you are to live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we have God's children. Now, if you are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Like this is, you could sit in that truth and have it rock you for a long, long, long time on any given topic. Like you're like, oh, I feel sad and I feel ugly today or whatever. Like the reality of your sonship, like I'm actually ridiculously important in the universe. Maybe not to the universe itself, but to the one who created it. Like I'm immensely important and like have that lift you out of whatever little funk you're in. It's like, oh my gosh, I'm, oh, I'm a son. Oh, Lordy, I'm a son. Okay, good. And move on with your day from that point. <laughs> um, but letting that be, again, the lens in which we approach every situation. Like I, I have a friend um, that I call periodically and when I'm complaining or whining or whatever, he'll be like, oh, there you are, you little orphan. And he's just calling me out for not walking in my, in walking in my sonship. He's like, oh, oh, look at you. You don't, you, God's not your father. That's cool. I'm like, no way he is. Okay, I'm sorry. But like, it's so easy just to like, it's so easy whenever anything comes up to derail us to just pop out of that truth for any given second. And you can live years there. Even if you know, okay, yeah, I am. But then you can, you can lead a ton of sets up here. You can preach on the stage. You can do a lot of things and not be living out of that truth. Um, another really important aspect is our the reality that we are image bearers of him. This is another radical truth that should help envision us for our lives. This should shut up every fear and every, every insecurity about 
what your voice sounds like, what you look like, anything like that. It's like, no, 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 you're an image bearer. You have a wonky knee, that's okay. That's his wonky knee. He made it and he loves it because you bear his image. And so anytime any accusation can come up to, to, to get you off, to get you distracted, um, that's another truth. And then lastly, that Jesus intends to marry you. This is another radical, radical topic that I'm just going to glaze over. But the marriage, like, he's, he's coming back to marry you specifically. He died on the cross for you specifically, thinking about you. That truth should fill us up with so much vision and power that we should lay our lives down for whatever cause he calls us to. Like, that, it, it could rock us to our core. Like, thankfully, I know that, like... Sophia said yes to marrying me last week, and that's amazing. And so, yeah, he clapped for miracles. That's typically accustomed. Yeah, uh, did I? Oh, did I? Oh, sorry. Um, that's true. But, like, I'm very excited for that. Don't get me wrong. But the fact that the creator of the universe and my savior is like, oh, he, wants to, he also wants to marry me? Oh, my gosh. This is an amazing day. Like, that can pull you out from any dark hole, from any dark circumstance, over any hardship, over any amount of time. And so these, these anchoring truths are actually where we start for whatever we want vision for. House of prayer, missions, any sort of, you know, justice issue. Like, doesn't matter. You start here. You don't start anywhere else. And you actually never leave here either. Like, that's also true across the board. We want to live a life of overflow. Our ambition is that every conversation, action, decision, and thought that we have comes from the overflow of these truths. Like I said about my buddy, he was calling me out for not operating in, in the overflow of these truths. I was over being an orphan, whining, complaining. But we want to live every conversation, every interaction, like in the back of our heads, like, okay, no, I know who I am. I know these ridiculously impactful truths about me that I've just scraped the surface of their implications for my life. But that's kind of where we want to, to approach everything. It can have a profound effect on our emotions and even our capacity. Like, even if you are a really, you know, industrious kind of task-driven person, you're like, okay, yeah, I know. I'll sit in these happy feelings about how God feels about me, but then I want to go do the work. You'll have more capacity if you live out of these truths. You will accomplish more. Like Mike Bickle always says, a lover outworks a worker. That is entirely true. Like what if you didn't have to rest on all your coping mechanisms because you knew who you were and all of a sudden that was enough for you? Like that's another a free two hours every night or whatever. But uh, like it's very true. And not only does a lover outwork a worker, but the Lord cares about the worker so much more than the work. Like that's another place we just kind of get really, really off is like, okay, I'm called to, I got to do the house of prayer. If I don't do it, no one will. It's like, no, 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 that's not true. He doesn't, he doesn't need us to do things. He wants us. That was the point of all of it. I'll get to that at the end, but like he's, he's after us. He's not after what we can do. He's not after the effect we're going to have. It's all very, very secondary. That's just a fun way to also get us is by having us help him with things but he's really just after us. Um, 
Now how things can get a little twisted. That's uh, the bullet point I have, which is under every one. So this is the how things get twisted for the personal envisionment. Um, so with all of, with every layer, so all four of the levels, um, you can get off and it can have effects in different areas of your life. And so dwelling on or even living with or ignoring things about ourselves we don't like, that's a, I'll call it a red flag that, you know, maybe you're not exactly where you want to be with this and just a place that you can work on, quite honestly. Living out of performance, um, unhealthy servant-based martyrdom striving type things where it's like, I'm such trash that I'll give my life for the Lord. It's like, hmm, that's not exactly where he wants you to come from with that. Like, I'll just, I'll do 8,000 hours in the prayer room because my comfort is not important and I'm awful. Like, no, you should. He wants you to take care of yourself. He really does. Um, depression, big one. Being overly hard on yourself. Orphan mentality that I was talking about. Comparison with other people. Like, that's a really not one to keep around. Um, these are all just like little, when these things come up, you're like, okay, I'm not operating out of my sonship. I'm not remembering that I'm Jesus' bride, that I'm made in his image. Like, these little truths, little amazing truths, um, they're just little helpful, like, okay. And so instead of getting down about those when they come up, just acknowledge, acknowledging that, these negative emotions and these triggers are helping inform me. It's like, okay, I haven't let his love touch me in these places. I have an opportunity now to get even more whole, to, to be able to operate in my calling and in my walk with the Lord from a more whole perspective and in fullness. I'll have greater capacity, and I'll actually get more done and I'll have more effect and change. I think that's a big inhibitor a lot of the time is like, doing any sort of soul work, everyone's like, it takes so much time, and like, I'm busy, and I have things to do. Um, it's like, you will thank yourself, have more time, have more capacity, be more effective, live a happier life, if you do take the time. Like, having a lot to do is not a good excuse, because it's not. I said so. Um, Another helpful thing you can do is investigate with the Lord or with a friend where you may be operating out of lies. That's really, really helpful. Um, you can kind of, if, if you are operating out of an unhealthy servant martyrdom mentality where you're like, I have to kill myself daily for the Lord. It's what he wants. Um, talk it through with a friend and identify the lie, and then you have a place to work from. Um, be patient with yourself because really important, like like I said, we don't move on from here, and we're gonna be finding these things out for our entire lives, and so you don't have to hit the nail on the head and be amazing all of a sudden, right after you figure it out, like these are all processes. Something I find helpful is to intentionally open this box systematically, and so we all wanna be effective, and we all wanna do good things for Jesus, and be able to do the house of prayer with a big old smile on our face, and we don't want to have to acknowledge that we're all still really broken people. And we just want to be envisioned for the house of prayer. And like, I, for me, I want to be envisioned for the house of prayer and I do not want to deal with any of my trash. And I don't like to pretend that those are related at all. Um, but they deeply, deeply are. And so intentionally opening the box systematically. The prayer room is a wonderful place to do that. We're like, all right, God, 
I'm sure I still hate myself in like five areas. Can let's crack open the box and handle it and I'll come back next week. You know, you don't have to live there and have it ruin your life, but kill the dragon in the cave before it comes to your village. Like if you don't handle these things, they'll come and womp you eventually. Um, counseling and inner healing are amazing little, I call them oil changes. Like you should get them every then and again. I do both and it's an amazing decision and nothing to be ashamed about and can actually bring about a lot of nice change. Um, actively delighting in, this, in your own strengths and the strengths of the people around you. Like writing this level of notes was excruciating and I know for a fact that Caitlin could have done it in five minutes sitting out at that table while talking quantum physics with Riker. And you know what? And I delight in that. And I'm not comparing myself. I have plenty of skills. But like, and also delighting in the things that are good about you and other people, like I said. Um, and then the last one, which is a big one, and a ton of people disagree with me on this. I don't really care. Um, have a quiet time. Like, make time to be alone with Jesus. Sort of an awkward thing to say in the prayer movement because we come and pray all the time corporately. Really, really important. Brad's got a thousand-part series out there that describes why. But getting alone with him, I mean, Matthew 6, 6, when you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father who is unseen. Pretty straightforward. Um, and it's a really good place to get alone with God and kind of face some of that stuff so you can go out into the world and do what he wants you to do from flowing out of the right place. Um, all right, Oof. all right, sped through. I was gonna hang up on that one for too long, but. So that's being personally envisioned. Now we're gonna talk about being corporately envisioned, what that means. The Lord set it up for us to dwell together in proximity, in unity. When this is operating in a healthy way, it strengthens all levels of being envisioned, as well as accomplishes the purposes the Lord has for that corporate body. And obviously here at TPR, we're all into night and day prayer and, you know, preparing this generation for the age ahead. And we have all of these goals, very amazing goals that he has called us to do corporately, right? That's what that means. And part of this is because God calls us to be partners. I kind of hinted to this earlier is that he set up life, it's an astounding truth, but his love and plan for us transcends just our personal lives. He desires us to team up with those around us to do the stuff that he wants to do. He finds us worthy to split the work of heaven with us in our weak, weak strength in conjunction with his might and power. It's our job to display the glory of the coming kingdom to the world around us. Like that is, that is one of our primary things, is to point to the coming kingdom, try to let the world know. And God could do it on his own, but he wants us to partner with him corporately. Like it's like kind of awesome and amazing. Um, we're the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12 says that all of these are the work of, the one, of one and the same spirit. And he gives them to each other just as he determines. The body is a unit. Though it is made up of many parts, and though its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ, for we are all baptized by one spirit into one body. Um, it's a really profound 
and kind of awesome truth. I'm glad that the Lord set it up that we do life in community. We're big on that here. We talk about it a lot. Um, and the Lord has given us to each other to some extent. It's actually kind of a more profound than just like, oh, we hang out and we also like pray together. Um, he's given us to each other to operate as one body and to love each other well. And there's a level of responsibility that comes with that. It's not really something to be taken super lightly. Like, you know, it's like, oh, you know, we come around and yeah, I've been here for five years and I love God and these people are kind of cool. He actually set it up to be a profound responsibility. Like, the body has many parts and they all have different functions. Like, okay, what if the ear just, like, floats around kind of apathetically doing whatever it really wants? It's like, hmm, things would get weird on the body there. But, like, we're supposed to operate in a function and have responsibility. That's, that's corporate living. It's not something to just kind of float in and out of. It's not something to do half-heartedly. It's not only to accomplish what the Lord wants, but it's how we're supposed to treat each other. Like, we're not supposed to treat our responsibility to each other lightly. Um, and, I mean, it brings about the joys of community as well. The Lord uses this in a lot of ways. He gives us ample opportunity not only to love each other, but to be further refined by forced interaction. When I walk into the prayer room, and a lot of you know this, and you see Tyler sitting there at the table, and you're filled with such a rage, and you don't know why. <laughs> it's actually not Tyler's fault. It's actually the Lord using that as an opportunity to get rid of some of your junk. I love you, dude. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's another reason he set up living corporately, is to help refine each other. Iron sharpens iron. Um, and that's done by having to work really closely with each other. There's a lot of stories about how the Lord uses the corporate body. to Like, I personally have many times been bailed out by my friends and by, like, other people in the body of Christ. Times that I was just beat down, depressed, whatever, and times that I was actively trying to burn my life to the ground. Thankfully, I had people who loved me enough, who had enough relationship with me to, like, slap me in the face and be like, dude, don't do that. Like, you're better than that. And we had enough relationship to where, I, like, I could hear them and eventually listened. But it, it's not possible if you're not operating in a corporate context properly. Like, if, if, if you've, you're standoffish and if you're, you know, just coming in here to do your prayer matters, get out. If you're really surfacy with everybody, like... You'll never, you'll never get that opportunity. You won't. Like, you won't have the depth. Hopefully, your small group leader will, like, catch it and help you out, but maybe not. Um, yeah, like Ecclesiastes 4, 9. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together... They will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Like, that's a perfect picture of living corporately and what that means. And that takes a level of commitment. Like, it can be sticky. Like, as soon as you get involved with a different corporate body, people are going to tick you off. It's just going to happen... 
you're gonna get exposed and you're gonna your weaknesses are gonna come up and that's uncomfortable it's easier just to kind of float around but persisting and and giving yourself to the process that the Lord wants us to do. He wants us to dwell together in unity. Blessed are those who dwell together in unity. He wants us to get to that point where that's a real reality. Um, Acts 2, just the, the early church, we see the picture painted of how they lived and what it looked like. And it was always like kind of offensive being in like, I remember growing up and you're in a, some big church and they read it and you're like, that looks like nothing that's going on right now. But Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together, and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who was in need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It sounds like a party. <laughs> sounds like an awesome party. Brad brings this uh, verse up a lot because like, that is what we're called to be. It's sort of a high bar and it's intimidating, but we believe that these are the end times and that this is where it's headed for us. Um, and you don't get that without trying. Like, if you don't get that if you're, you know, if you slacked off in the first level of personal envisionment and then you get corporately and people start to see your junk and then you get insecure and scared and you run and hide. You don't get that. It takes effort. It takes intentionality. This is, this should be our vision for what we want our interaction with our corporate body and our community to look like. Um, Hebrews 10, let us consider how we may spur one another onward towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, so some of you, so some of you have the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. And so he's referencing the day of the Lord, which is kind of an eschatological twist on this. It's like, okay, you guys need to dwell together. You need to meet. You need to love each other, especially with the day of the Lord approaching. It's a... Uh, kind of a mandate to, to push hard in the area of community and corporate living and loving each other well. It's like, yeah, because the day of the Lord's coming and things are going to get whack. But again, I'll get to that in a minute. Um, there are two facets to being corporately envisioned. There's the community aspect, loving each other and having fun, helping each other, bearing each other's burdens, rejoicing when someone rejoices and mourning when somebody mourns, just kind of like living with other Christians the way you're supposed to. And then there's also the mission. So we live in a context in TPR here where we do have a mandate and we do have a mission, a corporate mandate of night and day prayer. And that's what we're pushing towards. That's what we're devoting our time to. Um, it's our God-given mandate. And so with the, you have these two facets, you kind of have to hold them in tension for our context. Um, I've seen like a few of the ways things get twisted um, for this section would be leaning too far into one of the facets and neglecting the other. Um, going to all the prayer meetings and like going hard in that, but like hating having conversations with people. That's not great. Um, or just like mooching off the fun community and like not really throwing in with what we're about and like our mandate. And that's, you know, that's fine. There's different seasons of life in that. 
can happen and that's totally cool. But it is what we're called to do as a community and it is something that we all find that is deeply important to the Lord's heart. And so if you find yourself in either of those camps, it's like, okay, talk to the Lord about it. Maybe it's just your season. Maybe you are kind of slipping in how you're supposed to envision the importance of it. Um, another way is hyper-independence. And so I don't need anything from anybody ever. I actually, my life's totally fine and perfect. I've got it managed. Um, don't really need help from anybody. I am an introvert. And uh, I'm just kidding. I love you introverts. But uh, good umbrella term for avoiding people. Um, that's not how you want to be either. Like, honestly, you will need somebody eventually, and you probably need people way more than you're willing to admit. And so hyper-independence is kind of a way that we can operate in a community but be a little off with that. It's not how the Lord intended. Bear each other's burdens, rejoice when people rejoice, and mourn when they mourn. These aren't qualities that hyper-independent people typically are good at. Um, giving up too early, you see, you can see that often because community is hard. Dealing with people, people are, they can be, they can, they can do a number. But uh, you don't want to give up too early. You want to persist in loving people well in community and uh, bearing each other's burdens and all that stuff. But, and also being flaky. That's another one is not really committing, but just kind of fringing and um, not being scared of what the commitment of being part of a community kind of entails. Because there is a responsibility with it. Like I truly believe, especially if you're willing to call somebody a friend, that friend should know when to give you a hug and when to punch you in the face. And he's got to know when to do either one of those things. Um, and so committing, not being flaky, not giving up too quick, these are, are key to having a healthy community that's operating the way the Lord wanted to, that's operating the way we see the early church operating. And so that's, that's how we want to formulate being corporately envisioned. And so we have that personally envisioned. We know who we are, what we're good at, what the Lord celebrates in us, who he is to us. Then we enter the corporate scene, and we know what we're good at, what we can give, what our strengths are. Like Rhoda's crazy good at hospitality. And so you know what she does? She is just operates at being crazy good at hospitality. Um, she knows that it's her strength, and she is faithful to steward that well in community. That's how the Lord wants us each to approach our different strengths in community. And so, like, for me, it'd be like, um, uh, uh, just kidding. I'm good at plenty of things. But um, so next, being regionally envisioned or envisioned in framework with revival. Like I said, God loves all places, and so should we. Yet is it, it's impossible to live in more than one. You just live in one place at a time. It's, uh, it's physics. But since God is sovereign, we can be confident that we are in his will, that we're supposed to be right where we are. And so again, there is a level of responsibility that comes with this. It's like, all right, I live in one place. I live in Arlington. I live in DFW. Lord, how do you want me to operate? in that? What do you want me to do? How, what's my effect on the world around me supposed to look like? 
For some of us, it's praying for revival at revival prayer during our prayer meetings. For some of us, it's going out and doing evangelism. For some of us, it's being intentional with different friendships. It can look a, a ton of different ways. But we want to partner with God and receive his heart for the place he's called us to live and to operate. So we want to partner with his call for the Great Commission. The Lord called us to make disciples and to save the lost. This calls for interaction and intentionality of some kind, both within the body of Christ and from without. Paul gives a lot of clarity to the churches in the epistles about dealing with the world around them and what that looks like. Um, but you're not supposed to just ignore them completely. That's just not how he called it to, to, to look and to work. You, the Lord definitely has an opinion about what we're supposed to do where we live. Um, and it's good for us to discern that, to seek it out. Because we don't want to just be focused solely on ourselves and our relationship with him and sit in that forever. And then once we do go into the corporate area, we don't want to just stick with our little tribe and just like block out everybody else. But I mean, even here at the prayer room, we're intentional to when new people come in, trying to get them involved, trying to, trying to help them. That's how we are reaching out to the Dallas-Fort Worth area. We're trying to be a safe place and a beacon. And so knowing what that means in your own personal life, how does the Lord want you to interact with where you are? There's a ton of prophetic words about DFW. Um, Brad has a whole session in the prophetic history about the prophetic words over DFW, the Cindy Jacobs word, the you know, 24, 24 seven houses of prayer. These are his promises about where we live. And it's not necessarily a good call to just be completely apathetic about that. Like I know for me, I grew up in Detroit and I went to school in Kansas City. Now I live here. And so you kind of want to be just like, I'm a northern boy. Hey, hey, Texas, you guys are fine. But the truth is, no, I live here. He called me here. This is where I'm at. I want to have the Lord's heart, and I want to help the Lord accomplish what he's said he's going to accomplish in this area. And so there's words about revival. There's words about um, night and day prayer becoming very, very prevalent for it to be a, a powerhouse. Um, and I want to care about that. I want to have that be something that I'm actually stirred in my spirit about. Like, oh, Lord, you're going you're gonna to move here. Like, you're going you're gonna to break. There will be revival. People will get saved. I want to I be your buddy in that. Like, I would love to, for my future children, be able to send them to public school. It's not looking like that's going to be a reality. But if revival rips through the school and everyone gets saved... Sure, I'd send them. It'd be great and cheap and wonderful. But, but like, we have to get the Lord's heart for what he's trying to do. Like, he, he's, he's waiting for people who will partner with him. Like, that's, that's partly why we have the prayer for revival. We want to do our part every prayer meeting to partner with his heart for what he wants to do. I mean, it's pretty simple. You know, it's the vision stuff, but... Um, now, how things can get a little twisted with that. Um, people can have a tendency to focus on revival over Jesus a lot of the time, putting our trust in the healing instead of the healer. Um, you know, you've seen kind of those, those conference Christians from time to time where they'll kind of just like chase the wave 
of the Spirit. Um, I'm not really casting any judgment, but I do know that the Lord calls us to live corporately, to foster our own hearts. Um, we want to be ones who are committed and, and not blowing around with the wind unless he specifically calls us to do that. But we want to focus on, on Jesus and what he wants to do. We, we don't want just like, oh, it'd be great if there was a move of the Spirit and people were flopping around everywhere. Like, that'd be so cool. No, I just like want to point people to the coming kingdom. And revival is like a little down payment of that. And so like, of course I want it. Like, I want it for to be a sign to everybody. That's what signs and wonders are. They're a sign of the coming kingdom. Like, the kingdom is, is then. It's not, it's not right now. Sorry, people who think differently. But we want to usher in and we want to be envisioned for revival unto um, the next portion. But we also want to avoid apathy and disdain towards where the Lord has put us. I mean, I've definitely wrestled with this. When you look out and you see the short, scraggly trees in DFW, you're like, you know, there's taller trees in other places. I do know that. But, no, I actually want to love DFW the way he loves it, regardless of how the trees look. But, and so fighting the apathy and the disdain, even, that can, that can come up and learning to love where the Lord's put you. Um... But yes, so that leads us into the next portion, which is the end times or being eternally or eschatologically envisioned. Now, we hit on this pretty hard here, but I want to I wanna point about how these four different categories kind of feed into each other. So, lastly, we have being envisioned about Jesus' glorious return. This is also a level that has two angles or facets. We have preparing our hearts and studying um, the time of great trouble, which is what Brad's doing pretty much has been forever. But then we also have the waiting for the one in wonderful expectation for his glorious return in the restoration of all things. And these are both really intertwined. They're not really two different parts, but they are two very different reactions from us. Um, so I kind of split them up that way. So we have preparing for the coming trouble and then also preparing for his coming kingdom, which immediately follows that. And so we want to align with Jesus' plan across all spheres of our life so that we can be more passionate about his plan to return and restore the earth and bring judgment. Operating across all the levels properly is supposed to point us and to those around us the coming kingdom and his glory. And so that's kind of reiterating the same point. But um, we do want to be able to hold both of them in tension, both the preparing our hearts for the coming trouble. And so it's like, wow, things are going to be really hard. We need to study. We need to know what it looks like. We need, to, we need to partner with his heart for judgments. But then we also need to look towards the glorious restoration and his goodness that he's going to actually bring about in this coming age. Um, but we also have, like I kind of mentioned earlier, the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the purpose for all of life. This is the reason that Jesus even created us, is that he just wants to be with us forever. That's the goal that he's had from the beginning. Um, the marriage supper of the Lamb 
is when this is made into a beautiful reality and our union with him is finally made complete. That's part of being eternally envisioned, is like having that be an anchor for your hope. So it's not only I'm loved and delighted in right now, it's like I'm loved and delighted in right now and I'm going to have perfect union with him in eternity. Like that, that is a reality that's going to happen. I'm going to be made new and complete. All of my needs are going to get met. None of my doubts and fears will ever be able to touch me. Everything that goes along with that reality. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This is a pretty big verse, and I, I use it a lot, being, in, being eternally envisioned, because um, the light and momentary affliction is very often. And our answer to that is the eternal weight of glory that we're going to get. And sometimes this verse is actually all you get in life. Like, I'm sure plenty of us have been through suffering and heartache that there's literally no answer for on this side of eternity. Like, there's always tragedy that's going to happen. And sometimes your only consolation is, like, the eternal weight of glory that's beyond all comparison. Like, oh, everything's going to be restored you're going to come back. You're going to make all the wrong things right. There's no justice in this situation on this earth. But I know because I'm eternally envisioned that you are going to come. You're going to restore. You're going to make the wrong things right. Sometimes that's all we get, but it's such a profound truth that it actually can walk us through deep, deep heartbreaks. Um, while we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, Titus 2.13, kind of that same, along those same lines, that he is our glorious hope. This is where our hope rests in its entirety. We are called to put our hope in nothing else other than him. Every hard time, every good time, every victory, every defeat that we sustain in our life is unto that moment when he returns. And like, so we see how these four things are flowing through each other. We're personally envisioned. We know who we are. We operate in a group of people, of believers, accomplishing a mission that he's called us to do, to affect a region, to get people saved, to, to cry out for revival, and for that revival to point to the coming kingdom and use it to educate and get people ready for the coming age. We want to be envisioned across all four of those. But one way we can get off with the, the eschatological one that I kind of skipped over on accident is that we can, we can lean too far into those two facets, like I said, preparing our hearts for the coming trouble and then waiting in glorious expectation for his return. They seem like the same thing, but they can be, you can have two different heart approaches sometimes. If you lean too much in preparing for the coming trouble, you might lose sight of his goodness or like forget about that other half of the plan, you're like, oh my gosh, those bowls are going to jack everything up. But like, the truth is that we're supposed to hold that with the fact that he is going to make all things new and he's going to restore everything that you love. And if you focus solely on the fact that he's going to restore everything you love and you're not ready for the coming trouble, you're going to be like, what the heck, half of the earth just died. I'm so offended. Like, Brad talks about that one a lot, but these two eschatological truths we want to hold because the hope carries us through the trouble 
And learning about the trouble helps us so that we're not offended and we still love God. But uh, just in conclusion here as I'm wrapping up, just to kind of reiterate a few of the points I already said, our personal level of envisionment, envisionment makes it so that we can properly engage with the corporate level so that we're not being pathological and operating out of some weird brokenness as we try to help the church, but that we're healthy when we're engaging with other believers or at least pushing towards health. When we are operating properly in our corporate setting, we can much easier get the Lord's heart and vision for our region and the revival that is in his heart to give us. And so when we're operating and doing what we're supposed to be doing, in this case, house of prayer that ends up praying for revival all the time, praying for DFW all the time, we're partnering with his heart on that. And we can use our heart and engagement with our region to educate and prepare people's hearts for the coming age and the return of our blessed hope in the time of trouble. So that's where the third goes into the fourth. And as we set our eyes on him and his plan and how he will establish us with him in glory, we are reminded back to the first level of his magnificent love for us, even here and now. Um, my hope is that we look at our walk a little differently and our callings kind of through this lens, um, that it can pull us out of apathy or where we may have gotten off in one of these ones so we can properly tend and care for our hearts, we can properly operate and care for the people around us, we can care about the place we live, and we can prepare our hearts and care about the coming age and anchor our hope in eternity. Like, we want it to flow from that and then back to the beginning again. And like, that can be sort of what this whole, get more vision. Like, you know, when people throw that one at you, you can kind of be like, okay, yeah, I'll flow out of who I am into what I'm supposed to do and who I am in the corporate, into what I'm supposed to team up with regionally and pray for in revival because you're coming back soon and we gotta get everybody ready and I'm gonna be with you forever and marry you. <laughs> like, flow through all of that, be envisioned in every aspect of our lives, not in just one or the other. Um, and it can help us get closer to Jesus and do what he wants us to do. This concludes this teaching from the prayer room. For more resources or to schedule another TPR teacher to come speak at your church or event, please see our website at theprayerroomdfw.com. Thank you.